Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Welcome to another episode of The Gary Hour. I'm your host, Gary Levitt. And this week, we talk to psychotherapist and photographer, Herb Bar-David. Now, this is one of the reasons why I love doing this podcast, is because even though we have well-known people on sometimes, there's so many people out there with interesting perspectives and experiences and wisdom to share that never really get heard from. And Herb Bar-David is one of those people. We talked a lot about psychology and relationships and his experience photographing elderly people and protests throughout the years dating back to the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War. We compare it to what's happening today. We also talked about the Kavanaugh hearings and Dr. Blasey Ford's testimony, which uh, he watched every word of, and I figured he probably had some uh, professional perspective on that as a psychotherapist. This episode is brought to you by Future Moments, makers of mobile apps for content creation. If you're a filmmaker, a musician, a podcaster, voiceover artist, or just someone that takes videos on their phone, go to the App Store and search for Future Moments because they have an app that'll make your life easier and your production so much better. Check out the show notes for links to Herb and his photography project, Getting Old and Getting Out. There's also links to review this podcast. Please do that as it really helps other people discover it so we could hear some more wisdom. Sure seems like it is. Okay, good. Herb Bar David. Right. Yes. This is good timing. Thanks for doing this because I just saw you on CBS. Okay, right. They were showcasing your photographs, getting old and getting out. Right. In New York City. In New York City. Right. So you're going to parks and wherever else you see interesting looking elderly people? Correct. Sometimes right on the street. Mm-hmm. 
and I will stop them. And, and you just said the, I think the magic word, if they're interesting. And I just saw a gentleman who was wearing a very dapper hat, suit, uh, tie, matching kerchief in his pocket. Mm-hmm. And if they're elderly, um, and interesting looking, I want to talk to them. So you also, you're a photographer, so you take their pictures. Correct. And then you tell their story. Correct. So what have you been learning from this? Oh, interesting question. Thank you. Um, I'm learning lots of different stories from lots of different people, and I am always surprised, and I thought I couldn't be surprised, but I'm always surprised by some of the stories that I hear. For instance, um, I've met three different people who escaped the Nazis during their childhood. Um, and interesting stories of how it happened with yeah. lots, of, lots of detail. We don't have much time left until they're all gone, and there'll be no living person with any memories of World War II. That's correct. And one of the women that I met thought that it was very important for her to tell her story as to as many people as possible because she thought it was a story that had to be heard and had to be remembered. Yes, just, just so, the Holocaust, point. so right. the Holocaust did happen. Correct. Exactly. That's exactly. So she escaped Germany? She escaped Croatia. And she was actually in two different concentration camps in Croatia. And I didn't quite understand all of this, but they were run by the Italians at the time. And the thing she said to me, which was one of the things I learned very interesting, is that in the Italian concentration camps, Italians did not kill the way Germans did. Was the food better? I guess, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> and uh, she said, had it been a German concentration camp, she probably would not have survived. So they didn't kill the Jews, they just kept them alive? Correct. To work and stuff? Correct, right. Mm-hmm. As prisoners or war prisoners or prisoners during the war. Right. Also met a gentleman, Japanese uh, man. Well, how, how, before we move on, sure. how, how did she get out? Did the war end? The war ended. And they released the prisoners from the concentration camp. And then she went to several different countries. She went to London. Um, I'm not sure if she went to Italy. And then she came to New York. And she is in love with New York and has been since she got here as a young adult. Yeah. And she said she would really want to live here rather than any other place in the world. So you're also a psychotherapist. That's correct. So I imagine you, once she starts telling you about her being in a concentration camp, your psychotherapist hat must have gone on. Correct. Because you're, now you know you're talking to someone with a history of serious trauma. Correct, right. And it, it helps me a great deal in terms of not only talking to people, but listening to them. So I know how, for the most part, to ask the questions that will elicit response and and get people to talk. The interesting part of that is that in New York City, um, for the most part, the elderly are ignored. When people walk down the street, young people walk down the street, middle-aged people, they don't want to look at old. They don't want to be reminded of what's ahead. Mm -hmm. So people who are elderly are ignored, they're invisible, they're looked right through as if they don't exist. Yeah, not not just by people, but by the media, right. by commercials, you're out of the you're out of the uh, target audience of purchasing anything. Correct. If you watch TV, you think that the whole world is 40 or 50 years old and that's the el- oldest they get. Yeah. Um, so you're right, out of out of the target audience of the media. And so when I stop people and I'm interested in them, they're surprised. 
and they have a chance to talk and they don't often get that chance. And oftentimes they don't want to stop talking with me. They want to keep going. And after a while I need to, to end it. But it's interesting that they have an opportunity to speak with someone who's interested in their story and what's happened to them. Many of them are surprised. They want to know, why am I doing this? What's important to me? Uh, And I'll, you know, I'd let them know, of course. Yeah, the woman that you were talking to that was in the concentration camps, did you start to see, uh, like, some PTSD start to come out? Did she start to well up? Did you feel like you were going to start to have to bill her? No, <laughs> that would be a good idea. Uh, no, um, she actually told it almost like a history book that was almost uh, devoid of the emotion, uh-huh. that it was important for her to get the details across. I wanted to ask her about living in New York, not just about her history, but also what was it like for her uh, today. And she was more interested in telling me the history of what had happened to her and yeah. told it almost as a history book. How many years had she spent in these uh, both both these concentration camps? I think it was two years in total. Um, so it, it was. Uh, Did she lose her lose her parents? Yes, All, yeah. both of her parents yeah. gone. Yeah, and um, I I spoke to another woman who was actually um, crossing the street only with a cane. Uh, she spoke clearly. There was no dementia, obviously, and she was a hundred and one years old. Wow! And she too. Um, had escaped the Nazis, although she was not in a concentration camp. She saw her father shot right in front of her wow. by by the Nazis, um, and she she's a hundred and one. Now, how and do you get this information out of them? I stop. Um, I ask them. I ask them what they used to do, or what was their childhood like, and again, they they want to talk. Um, they, they'll ask me some questions about myself, and I'm very free, and I'll tell them. They'll ask me, how old am I? And I'll let them know, uh, what do I do? I'm a social worker. I'm a therapist. Um, and I'll tell them what's going on so that it's an interchange, so it's a conversation. It's not just a one-way dialogue. Right. You've been a therapist monologue. for uh, 47 years. 47 years. Okay. okay so that's got to uh, infiltrate your conversational skills. Correct. Right. Just naturally. Yeah. I've, I've, been, I've been interested in photography, photography since I'm 10. Mm-hmm. So, um, between my photography and my psychotherapy skills, it's my two strong suits. So I've, I've combined my skills in, in this area and it's working very well for me. Yeah. Do you, uh, feel like you're asking questions to get certain, to elicit certain emotions out of them or? No, no. I'm just, uh, asking open-ended questions so that they can tell me their story. Right. When I walk down the street and I look at someone, I know they have a story. And although I may not say this directly, I would say, tell me a story. That's what I want to know. And I want them to be able to speak freely. So I'll ask open-ended questions. Right. And how is that different if you're working with a client? Well, the client is often problem-focused. They're there for a specific reason most of the time. And they're working on uh, specific issues. And of course, I'm meeting with them weekly. So it's an ongoing conversation that I know the history and that's a, a lot different and a lot easier. Um, this is very brief. This is background information. This is your experience, your history. And then it's also telling me what it's like to live now. Do you live alone? And most of the people that I speak with do live alone. Mm. And so it becomes important for them to get out so that they don't feel so lonely. Right. And they live alone. And uh, I imagine a lot of their family has passed away. Correct. Right. Do you find that most of them are sad? Um, some of them are very up, 
be some of them, there's a sadness that will come out uh, more than I would like to think. Um, as I've been speaking with people, the issue of the loss of a child has come up. Mm. I'll, I'll ask them, do you have any children? And that's when the sadness has come out several times where one man said, well, I had three sons and now I only have two. And then he started to cry. Right. A woman also who had lost a son. Um, one gentleman that I was speaking with, his wife had died 10 years ago. And he was very sad. He was very lonely. As a matter of fact, he felt so lonely and enjoyed the conversation with me so much that he said, you know, I like this. Can we meet again? <laughs> and we did. Uh -huh. um, you know, he gave me his phone number. I, I promised I would call him, and I did. We actually met for breakfast. Okay, so it's you didn't meet him as a client. Oh, no, no. You right. met this, him as a friend. <laughs> this, this, no, I didn't meet him as a client. Right. This, I, I'm not looking for clients. I'm right. Not, I'm not looking for... <laughs> You're not like the ambulance chaser of psychotherapists. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Running around the streets looking for, are you in my plan? No, <laughs> yes. not quite. Hey, what's your insurance? Do you right. have any trauma you'd like to talk about? <laughs> not quite. But but this gentleman was, you know, again, this is someone else. He was wearing a Zabar's hat. He was a, clearly an elderly man walking with a cane. I started to comment on his hat. That was an opening for a conversation. I was looking for some kind of opening to start speaking with them because, you know, why do you stop a stranger in New York yep. and start to talk to them? Um, so I'm always looking for an opening. I'm also very um, aware of my white privilege mm. that if I were, uh, I'm 6'1", I'm a big guy, and if I was a big black guy mm -hmm. and I stop people on the street and start saying, uh, do you live alone and how many children do you have? I don't know that I would be received as easily as I am now. So I'm aware that I'm lucky to be able to do that. And wow. Fortunate and aware of my, my uh, privilege there. Yeah, that's uh, pretty introspective of you to realize and to talk about. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's uh, an awareness, I think, that we're beginning to have more of right. and need to. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I imagine when you stop to talk to people, especially here in New York City, the first reaction would naturally be, what do you want? and put my hands on my wallet absolutely <laughs> like you know and why are you asking me these personal questions you know, right are you going to come you know into my apartment now that i told you i live alone and, right and they're a frail elderly man or woman um you know, so you have to be able to put them at ease and, and talk to them and let them know that i'm really just interested in their story right and i imagine being a psychotherapist for 47 years you've gotten the demeanor and the natural interaction down where you make people feel comfortable. I think so. Yeah. Is, now, is there something to that? I mean, with all these, all these years of experience you have, it must come naturally, but can you dissect what it is that you do to put people at ease and to let them not only just speak about their emotions, but get in touch with their emotions in front of another person? I think, I think it's a combination of things. It's body posture. Mm. Um, I present myself, Somehow I, you know, I'm comfortable with myself and I'm not intimidating. It's your tone of voice. It's the way in which you speak. And also I very quickly let people know that I'm open to talk about myself. Right. I, I've often said, if you want someone to tell you a story about their uncle, tell them a story about your uncle first. Right. But does and that work in psychotherapy? Because you're kind of not supposed to talk about yourself yeah, well, psychotherapy is slightly different <laughs> uh -huh. and people are coming there because presumably they want to speak um, even when they get there 
They may still have difficulty and hold back in certain things. You have to make them comfortable. That takes time. Mm-hmm. Um, I have the advantage of time when I'm seeing a patient over and over and over again. And then they get to feel comfortable and they know that I'm not judgmental. I know that they know that I'm trusting. Um, I'm not going to be, again, judgmental is a big issue. Right. Because so many people are afraid to say something because they're afraid they're going to be corrected. They're going to be uh, criticized, right. uh, they're going to be judged. And once they get to know me, which I have the advantage of meeting with people weekly, they, they're comfortable with that. Yeah. But I, I, I try to compose some of that of who I am when I'm meeting someone. And it, it's hard because it's cold. It's on the street. Um, I, I look at someone, do they look like they're going somewhere and they're too busy to talk? So I may not stop that person. One of the reasons I'll go to a park is that often they're sitting on a bench, they're relaxed, they're not necessarily in a hurry to go somewhere, so it's a little easier to talk to that person. Right. Do these people, uh, you ever get someone just really crabby and negative that just bums you out? <laughs> um, somewhat, and that ends pretty quickly. It doesn't bum me out. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I'll start talking to someone and they get a little, they're a little hostile, and I'll say, okay, you know, and then I'll just cut it short and move on. Right, because there is something about getting older which makes a lot of people crotchety. Yeah, it's, it's true. Uh, life is difficult, you know, and that, that's what I ask them. Um, they have a walker uh, or they have a wheelchair. Is, is life difficult? Is it, is it hard for you to get out of the door with a walker or a wheelchair or down the elevator? Or do you have steps? Um, so there's a lot for them to complain about. Yeah. And they might, um, and a lot of them are just a couple of women uh, and men have surprised me. One reason I said a woman, uh, one woman, she said, I asked if she was married and she said, uh, or married and divorced a long time ago. And, um, my husband's remarried, but she's got, um, what she's called something like the sloppy seconds or something. I had, <laughs> I, I had him for the best part of his life. Right. <laughs> and now, and now when I wake up every morning, I feel uh, lucky to be alive and I can do whatever I want to do. She was retired. She had a pension. Uh, she was, you know, I don't think she was wealthy, but she was comfortable financially. She didn't have to worry about things. And she said, I can do whatever I want to do. And there are a number of people who said, I, I don't have reason to complain. I'm lucky to be alive at this age. Yeah. I mean, if I'm learning anything in this life, it's that uh, gratitude, as hard as it is to feel, will make you happy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I don't know why, but I, as humans, it seems like we just have a natural inclination to complain. Right. To look for what we don't have, for what right. we want. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, a lot of us have so much. That's true. And, and there are people who have so much and still complain. Yeah, I mean, I just got iOS 12 on my iPhone. Oh. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> no, but when I have a toothache or some sort of health problem, right. then it's just a kind of a good reminder of when you don't have that and you could just get up and walk around and not have any sort of pain or discomfort. That's one of the major complaints that I hear from people. They have so many doctors they have to go to. They're tired of this. They're tired of that. You know, toothaches and... Uh, stomach aches and there are lots of as you age you spend more time visiting doctors right because you have more aches and pains yeah and it's that quality of life thing mm-hmm. like when do you when do you draw the line you right. know right as hard as that is to admit yes it's hard mm-hmm. so what have you been uh does speaking to these people make you 
feel more gratitude? Absolutely. Because you get you get a lot around fine. You're still doing so many things. You're still practicing. I, I'm well aware of that, and it, it'll hit home particularly uh, when I see someone who is looking very elderly, walking with a walker, and they wind up being a year or two younger than I am, oh. which is really amazing. Right. I mean, I'm 74 years old. I'm very fortunate. I, I don't need a cane. I'm in good health. Mm-hmm. Um, I go to the gym. I get around. And then I'll be talking to someone who is looking elderly and is, and they're 79, uh, 69 years old or 71 years old, right. um, which is always amazing. Now, do you think some of that might be because you have passions? You have, a, you have projects, you have passions and interests you're fired up about? I think so. I think some of it is genetics, but some of it is attitude and what you do with your life. And uh, I just don't sit around and get old. I'll get out and I do things and I do have passions. And I'm, you know, I, I, musically, I'm really not talented in the least. Uh-huh. However, I take music lessons. Yeah. <laughs> because I want to, because I want to be interested in more things. I want to keep active and I want to stay alert. Yeah. It's quite admirable that you're taking music lessons because. A lot of people would say, ah, oh, why bother? It's too late. Right. I mean, I hear people in their 30s being like, ah, oh, I should have played as a kid. It's too late. Well, it's it's interesting. I didn't start playing until I was 56. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't read music. I knew nothing, but I decided I'm going to learn how to read music and I'm going to take lessons. I'm really terrible, but I really like it. <laughs> <laughs> and also it keeps your brain active. Yeah, yeah ab- absolutely. Learning new things. Exactly. I mean, I, I have to tell you one of the funny stories met a lot of people with interesting stories, obviously, some of them funny. But there was a gentleman walking, facing me. I'm just going to ignore that. Yeah. Okay. Um, and he was bent over, literally looking at the sidewalk as he walked with a cane. And he called out to no one in particular as I was passing him, asking, where is he? I thought perhaps he was blind. He was just looking down. Uh-huh. So I said, you're in, I think it was 78th Street and Broadway. And I used that as an opportunity to start talking to him because I had my camera with me. I usually do. Did you say, I'm here? <laughs> so I start talking to him. And a couple of things. One is, this is a, a guy who turned out to be a, a little younger than myself, which mm-hmm. was surprising because he was tottering on this cane and facing the sidewalk. And I said, what did you used to do? He said, well, I was a rock star. I was in a rock band. Uh-huh. And he said, you might have heard of us. I said, who? He said, the left bank. Uh-huh. Now, the left bank, I, you're younger than I am, but in the 70s, they had a number one hit called Walk Away Renee. Oh, I know that song. Okay. Well, this guy played bass for them. Uh-huh. And it was just fascinating. And when, when, he, when he said, you know, I used to play guitar, he straightened up, pretended his cane was a guitar, and started singing for me. Yeah. It was, it was great. Did it was he just really come great. to life? He came to life. His, his face lit up. He smiled. Yeah. And, and he 20 years up. dropped off. Right. And, and, and he straightened up. And it was wonderful. It was yeah. really, it was really terrific. Yeah, there's something to that spirit. Yeah, I mean, how do we stay in touch with that? Well, I think the other piece of it is is having uh, a social life of some sort. In mm. other words, having people that you're connected to. If you're if you have a partner, that helps a great deal. Right. If your partner is still alive, you're lucky. And having friends. And it's really funny. The, the woman who was from the concentration camp, she's 93 years old now. And I, and she was alert, sharp, has not lost a, a stitch. And I said, how is it that you s- seem so young and stay so healthy? She said, the trick is to have young friends. Right. And I think she was right. 
And so she's involved. She goes to the ballet, she goes to the theater, she goes to movies, and she does it with other people. So she has a connection. Isolation, social isolation, it can be very devastating, and I think it can age you. Yeah, and they say that's a big cause of depression as well. Yeah, absolutely. Which is yeah. your department. Yep. Your yep. field. Yep. And how have you, you're still a practicing psychotherapist. Right, yep, I am two days a week. Two days a week, yeah. okay, that's good. Because what I hear from, uh, we've had psychologists and uh -huh. uh, psychiatrists on, right. the, on this podcast before, and one running thing is uh, compassion fatigue. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you get, do you get just... I mean, two days a week is probably enough. For to... me, no. I mean, when when I was doing it full time, and there was a, a period when I was much younger, I was doing it actually five and a half days. Uh -huh. um, there was, you know, you could get burned out when at the end of the day, I didn't want to talk to anyone, right. and I didn't want to listen to anyone. I can, you know, I would come home and I want to eat dinner and just, you know, turn on television or something. Right. Um, yeah, it, you get overloaded. Um, now. Two days a week, it's easy, and it's and it's important to me. I, I want to do it because it, it helps me stay feel alive. Right. What kind of television would you find to kind of help you decompress? Um, Probably not a drama. No, not a drama. <laughs> not, not a drama. Not not a hospital program. Right. No. Uh, and this may sound surprising because it's more depressing now. But sports, but the Mets. I'm a big Mets fan. Right, uh, that could be that. depressing at times. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd watch, the, I'd watch the Mets. I'd watch the news. I'd, I'd watch football. Um, I don't like stories and, and uh, soap operas or anything that that smacks of it. You know, like uh, what is it? Uh, the uh, detective programs that go on weekly, um, Law and Order stuff. I'm not interested in that stuff. Right. I don't want to hear somebody else's story. Not at that point. Yeah, you've been hearing them all right, day. Exactly. Right. What. What as a, as a psychotherapist, what's harder to deal with when someone is so weighed down by something that you find is not even a problem, like they're making their own problems, or someone that really has some serious trauma? I think um, when someone can't hear what you have to say, and so so many of the people are stuck in their problems and don't want to let go of them. Right. And it sounds strange because they, they want to get rid of their problem. But then as you talk to them, they will sabotage what you have to say or you make suggestions. They will sabotage it. That's the most frustrating to me is someone who is, I would call them a help rejector mm -hmm. that doesn't, and well, learn, um, getting rescued is actually, I think, a learned skill. Mm. And so many people don't know how to rescue you throw them the life preserver and they they flounder about but won't grab onto it yeah and that to me is the most frustrating yeah and um i mean why do you think that is i have one theory and it's that s sometimes people just feel comfortable in their problem absolutely it's what they're used to absolutely no question it's familiar right and and anything different even growth can be frightening Right. So they hang on to it and they don't realize that they're hanging on to it and trying to show them that, you know, uh, one of the, one of the, um, refrains that I will often get from people and someone says, well, that's the way I am. And so I say, but is that the way you always want to be? Right. Um, what do you want to change? Is that Alexa? That's Alexa. She's listening. Have... Uh -oh. <laughs> Somebody else is listening. Hey, this podcast isn't even out, Alexa. <laughs> You can't listen yet. We're still recording it. <laughs> that's funny. She's so nosy. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, so it's that... Uh, Is that the way you want to stay? 
Right. And I'll challenge them and let them know that I think they're stuck and then they're refusing to let go. So you would just, you would say that to them? Yeah, I would. Would I also tell another story about um, how the scientists in the early 1900s were uh, working on rhesus monkeys. And in order to catch the rhesus monkeys, they would go into the field and take these old wa um, the water jars from a water cooler with these very narrow necks and they would put peanuts in the jars, and the monkeys would come along, put their hands into the jars, grab the peanuts, but then with their peanuts in their fist, the fist was too big to get back out of the jar, and they can catch these monkeys alive undamaged. Uh -huh. And all the monkeys needed to do to get free was to let go. Mm, and straighten say, out their hand, yeah. Let go, and I would say to the patient, you gotta let go. You're, you're holding on and you're stuck with it, let go. And then they're like, you calling me a monkey? Yeah, right, I get that sometimes. <laughs> But just anything to to get them to realize that they're just holding on to something that they need to let go of. Right. And a metaphor like that is yes. probably good. Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. sometimes. <laughs> right. What do, you, uh, what do you do when you have a patient that just will not let go? Uh, try every which way to, to get them to... My goal, if someone says to me, I never looked at it that way before, mm -hmm. then I've achieved my goal. Right. So that's what I try to do with my camera. Yep is to, to photograph something in a way that nobody has seen it before and to phrase something or to ask the question. And 90% of what I do is asking the right question. If I can ask a question that stimulates new thought, then I've done it. And that's what I try to do is, is figure out the right question to get them to look at something that they've been looking at over and over and over again the same way. And if that question can make them look at it a little differently. Someone says to me, oh, I never thought of it like that. Right. Then I've done my job. Now, what would you say to someone that really needs to see someone? They really need therapy, but they've tried it before. Yeah, I've tried it before. It doesn't work. <clears throat> what do you say to that person? Some, someone like that is already telling me they don't want to do it. Mm. Um, I'll tell them, well, I think you should try it again. I think it can work. Maybe you just haven't had the right person or maybe you weren't in the right frame of mind. Um, but not doing anything isn't going to help doing thing, doing something, at least is the opportunity. Um, but lots of times, and I've been there with people who, who argue with me uh, that they don't need therapy. Right. And they see it that way. Uh, for instance, uh, very early in my practice, a woman came in and she said, I, I need marital counseling, but my husband won't come in. And so at the end of the session, I said to her that although your husband won't come in and you really do need marital counseling, you should be in therapy so that you could figure out how to handle your life and what to do with a husband like that. And she said, no, no, it, it, I, my, if my husband's not here, there's no point in my coming. She left. About 10 months later, she called back and she said, I'd like to make an appointment. She came back and she started talking, not referencing that first session at all. And then at the end of that first session, uh, this, at the end, I'm sorry, at the end of the second session, she said to me, and how come you told me that first time that I didn't need therapy? Wow. And I know. Yeah. It wasn't even something that, that I might have said that was slightly vague, that could have been misconstrued. I was arguing with her you know, that she really needed to be in therapy. What she heard is what she wanted to hear. Or maybe her memory changed it? Well, that's also, yeah. She, she could be reconstructing history in her head and right. changing it. But people hear really what they want to hear so I mean, do, do you in that in that kind of situation do you correct her no I left you just alone. let it go i just let it go i said i'm glad you're here now uh, and that's someone just went forward 
uh, because I didn't want to get, I don't want to argue with someone. Right. Because then, then you lose the person. My job is not to, to fight with them. My job is to help them to see things differently. And that, right. that, that's what I want to do. I've had situations where, um, I'm, let's say I'm seeing a gentleman for a while and then it becomes clear that his wife ne- really should be joining him in sessions. And uh, his wife will come in and she'll say to me, and how come you told my husband it's okay for him to drink? I never said that. <laughs> so the other part of it is that lots of times when people say, you know, my, my doctor or my therapist told you to, told me to do this. Right. That may or may not be true. Right. Yeah. That's, I've heard that as an excuse. Yeah. Exactly. I need to be more selfish. Right. Exactly. And, and I don't think, and that probably wasn't what was said to them. Right. That's the way that they either yeah. heard it or. Yeah. Or, or twisted it. Or it's like, I remember in days, I don't know if you recall, um, there was this um, shark cartilage craze that that was a cure for cancer. This is mm-hmm. back in the 80s or the 90s. It was some nonsense. Right. And this patient went to the doctor and said, you know, I heard that shark cartilage will cure cancer. And the, and the oncologist said, no, it does nothing. It's, that's just a, a urban legend. And she said, yeah, but I really think that it might be helpful. And the doctor said, no, it doesn't do anything. And then the patient says, well, but it won't hurt me if I take it, right? And I said, well, it won't hurt you, won't do anything, but it, yeah, it won't hurt you. And then the patient leaves and says, doctor told me to take shark cartilage. <laughs> and those kinds of conversations happen as well. Right. So what made you get into psychotherapy? What, what, how did you know and why that you wanted to? That's a very interesting question. Um, for the longest time into my teen years, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, then I started working at a sleepaway camp. And I was really good and really loved it. What age was this? Um, 17, 18, 19. And every summer I, I worked as a counselor. Right. And then I finally said to someone, how do you do this during the winter? <laughs> and they said, well, go, go work at a community center. And I started working at community centers, running groups for teenagers and, and went back to, uh, school for my MSW, my master's in social work. Right. So you saw the link between. Yeah, absolutely. Working with kids and then people. And uh, that's what you can do with uh, social work. Yeah. Had you always been the kind of person where people felt comfortable telling you their problems? I th- I think so. For, mm-hmm. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Was the uh, school part of it a challenge? Did you feel like the school part of it was so necessary? Or were you just chasing that certificate to practice? Mostly chasing the certificate to practice. Yeah. And and I think for most people, once you get the certificate, then that gives you a license to go out and learn. Mm. And, and I think that's what really happened. I know for many years after I left, um, well, first I worked in agencies. So um, in social work, you always have a supervisor. So you always have other people who are directing or, or critiquing your work, which I think is absolutely necessary. Right. And then when I went into private practice, I mean, you're alone in a room with someone. And if you're making mistakes, you may not know it. Right. Um, so I hired a supervisor so that once a month I could sit down and review some of my cases and how I was working on them and what direction to handle. And then I remember there were uh, five, six of us, total five other people that I knew that we were friendly and we had what was called group supervision. And mm-hmm. once a month, we just, you know, there was no fee or anything. We all just met, had coffee and lunch. And uh, someone would present a case for the other five people to listen to. And you would present problems and where you felt stuck and you didn't know what to do with this issue. And you would have your colleagues help you. Right. And each, per, each colleague probably has their own uh, experience. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
and so you you take notes on each sure, patient absolutely mm-hmm. yeah and you sometimes must get stuck with a patient oh sure absolutely how often do you see the same thing dressed differently repeat themselves oh um i see that frequently frequently it, say, it, it, it takes on different details right but the the un- underlying process is often very familiar mm-hmm. the very same kind of thing um people feeling judged uh, fe- people feeling isolated um a lot of a lot of what i see are people who are either anxious uh depressed or in relationship issues either with their work um or their family right their their parents their partners or their children can you right? can you share with us some pretty common sort of advice general like like you said before being more social mm-hmm. you know making plans making friends and going out and being with friends are there certain things that you end up kind of repeating over and over and dressed up in different ways you mean as, as an individual in, in your life um yeah like to a to a patient where you see maybe they just need to be more social or maybe they need to try and be more positive or or to more grateful to, or or to be more open and not to be so frightened of other people's criticism or judgment mm. um so many people will say to me well they won't like this or that this person won't like me then if i do that and i said if you're just doing things because you think that's what someone else will accept you for and i see a lot of that right. then you're you're not really being real and you don't know if they'll accept you for who you are so just do and say what you really believe and the people who like you for that will be with you and the people who don't won't right um people are very very concerned with the opinion of others um and i have there's an old expression you know that in 15 cents will get you on the subway <laughs> or and now i say that in a ticket to the long hour their opinion and a ticket yeah. will get them on the long hour railroad right. why is their opinion so frightening to you and usually the reason is not because it's someone else's opinion but it's an opinion that validates some own personal criticism they have of themselves so mm-hmm. in other words if i'm feeling very confident about myself and okay and i walk into a room and someone says that's an ugly tie you're wearing okay so he doesn't like my tie right but if i am socially uh, fragile and i'm afraid and uh, i don't feel comfortable socially and I'm awkward and I walk in and someone criticizes my tie or fall apart. Right. Oh my god, I should have worn a different tie. No, it's not it's not about the tie. It's because that person said something about you that you already thought of before they said it. Right. But isn't this kind of I mean it's of course it's good to not care what people think so much. I know that and I know that that is easier said than done. Correct. <laughs> but isn't it also nuanced because we if you if you're if you're in solitary confinement, for example, we are just a mirror of the people around us. Like they say that that's that's a form of torture being in solitary because sure. you don't you lose sense of who you are. Yeah, absolutely. And you you can go crazy. Sure, it's like being social and being around people kind of let, reaffirms your own identity. A- absolutely. Um, I just had a thought that slipped. <laughs> mm-hmm. But oh, I um, so I think it also varies with who the other person is if it's your partner your spouse your wife or your husband and that person dislikes something you do that's going to have an impact you can't just say oh so that's their opinion right if it's uh if it's my boss at work 
and he doesn't like what I'm doing, that's, I have to respond to that. I have to be upset with that because it, it could be my job or my, my next raise. Um, it depends on who the person is and how important that person is in your life. If it's a mild acquaintance, no, say so don't like what I think. Um, I, I'm not happy about it. It may still bother me that they said it, but I'll let it go. If it's someone that I, you know, I've been friends with for a long time and I, I value their friendship and they start disagreeing and getting angry with me because I dislike this politician or something. Right. Um, yeah, I take it more seriously. So it's not just across the board, oh, let them have their opinion. It's yeah. not so simple. Yeah, because to, to completely not care what people think would make you a sociopathic narcissist, right, exactly. probably. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> right, right. So you care about what people think, but it has different levels depending upon how important that person is to you and also how aware of your own identity you are, how secure you are with yourself. Right. So it's a combination of things. So does all your training and experience help you analyze uh, public public people, celebrities, politicians? Yeah, yeah, somewhat. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, I can look at someone and say that this person's really a narcissistic. Right. Yeah, and most politicians are somewhat megalomanias because they want to get into a position of power. So Right, you have to to, to drive you. <laughs> right, yeah, they, they would. What about a sociopathic liar, for example? You ever people in your, uh, in your, any of your clients that you kind of think are lying to you? I, I think that sometimes, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I think so. But I know that they are presenting things through their own colored glasses as they see them. And I understand that they're pre presenting it subjectively, but that's okay. Because um, I want to know what their subjective view is. So I help to them to try and understand it mm. um, a little better, if right. I can. Yeah, because I've known people, and now I see it in Trump, just kind of an ease with lying. Sometimes just tiny little things that there was no need to lie about. Correct. He, he is yeah, he's someone I'm familiar with, certainly with that kind of person, mm -hmm. um, who needs to believe a reality, whether it's true or not, and thinks that if he tells that reality to other people, that that will make it so. And he has been in a position since the day he was born that he could get his way, right. and that he, if he is hard enough and pushes it often enough, that it will be his truth and he can get other people to believe it, or he dispenses with them. Right. Now, is this, would, would someone like that know that they're doing that? Are they, are they actually, do they know that they're lying or is it just? I think they believe their lies. They absolutely believe. They, sometimes they know that, well, I'll just tell them this and that's, it's going to be too bad or that the lie is, you know, it doesn't matter because what I get done is worth the lie. But I think most of the time mm -hmm. it is their reality and they really believe it's so. Right. So if you call them on it, they just. No. He thinks he's the best president ever. Right. I think he really believes that there were more people who attended his inauguration than attended Obama's inauguration. And he can just absolutely believe it. Even if presented with the numbers and the photographs. Yeah. Yeah, they're not true. Uh -huh. you, you got to be wrong. You're not taking into account lots of different things. You know, the, the population that watched it on TV, plus this, plus that, you don't know what you're talking about. Just rationalizes it. Absolutely. I, so he, he really believes it. So he's not really lying. I mean, by the purest essence of the word, he's lying. He is. He is telling untruths, but he doesn't think so. Right. 
So what would you call that? Is there? I would I would say he's a, a pathological liar. He's uh-huh. he he he's he's a um, uh, a sociopath, mm-hmm. an absolute sociopath, who uh, believes that. See, and and here's where he gets to believe the lies that he really thinks that the rules that apply to everyone else don't have to apply to him. Mm. And that's really a sociopath, that everybody else is constricted by those rules and regulations, but he's not, and he really shouldn't be. And he really believes that, because he can get things done if you don't hold him to those rules. Just let me do do it. That's the way dictators believe. I can get it done. Right. And, and you know, Mussolini got the, the trains to run on time. It works. But at what cost? And are you willing to? And he thinks it's worth the cost. We don't. Right, right. Have you had clients that are s- that pathological? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. You have. A few. Yeah. So when Trump came out and started to make himself uh, a candidate, did you recognize some of these traits? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very frightening. I just never really, I guess none of us did really believe that he would actually make it to the presidency. Right. I just couldn't believe it. And, and what, what shocked me was, the number of, of racists, and I really believe this is the issue, who curled out from under the rock. I mean, during the, during the, the civil rights movement, we could legislate what people had to do, integrate the schools, uh, integrate the, the restrooms and the buses and all of that, but you couldn't legislate their attitudes. And I think they all went underground. Mm. And then when Obama got elected, they were infuriated, and Trump has emboldened them, and they come crawling out from under the rocks. Yeah. I really believe that. Yeah. You've been photographing uh, civil, you've been big movements. Yeah. Well, I, I in, in the 60s, whenever I went on a demonstration, uh, grape strike, uh, I have pictures of Cesar Chavez, mm-hmm. um, uh, any of the anti-war demonstrations or, or a couple of marches that I were on with that were led by Martin Luther King, I always brought my camera. You, so you were there with Martin Luther King? I, I, I marched on demonstrations at Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King led. I was right. not there at the 1963 one. I was working in a camp, and they wouldn't let me off for two days in a row to go to the demonstration. Uh-huh. I remember it. I was really upset that I couldn't go. Um, but I was at lots of other demonstrations where King was there and Dick Gregory and Russell, uh, um, and Rusted Bayard. Um, and um, I'm going to have to cut that name because I know I've got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, and But I, I was there. And so um, when when Bush... Uh, declared war in Iraq, uh, I think it was 03. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started going on the demonstrations again. I took out all my old negatives from the 60s and I actually put them together. I have a book yep. um, called Peace Now and Then. Because when you go to a demonstration, you say, what do you want? Peace, when do you want it now? And peace now and then. and then. Um, available and I, on Amazon? Avail- available on <laughs> Amazon. <plug>. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, why not? <laughs> Um, and so I have uh, page for page the, uh, the photographs facing each other, mm-hmm. 40 years apart, and some of them are almost identical. Yeah. You know, grandma for peace, grandma for peace, right. uh, an American flag with the peace symbol in it in both pictures, 40 years apart. Right. And here we are 40 years later doing the same thing, protesting the same issues. Yeah. With this perspective, does it make you not panic with what's currently going on? Or, or is it actually different? It feels different. It does. Um, it does. But I remind myself that, that I think Vietnam must have been worse because millions of people actually died. Right. I mean, we were at war. We were you know, napalming people. We were sending American soldiers to die and to kill. Um, that had to be worse, I think, for mm-hmm. a lot of people. But somehow it feels this time 
that Trump doesn't play by the rules and that he's undermining democracy so uh, in, in a way that I, I don't know that I felt it this way before. Um, and the other thing that really feels different now is the ecological issues um, mm. that we, and it just came out yesterday, that we may have a 10-year window um, mm. before we can no longer reverse any of the damage that we've done to the earth. Right. And um, that's really scary. Yeah. Mean, what, am, what are we leaving for my grandchildren? Right. Which, I, even if you don't believe the scientists, mm -hmm. why not just in case you're wrong? <laughs> <laughs> that's a very good point. Yeah. Yeah. And I do believe the scientists. Right. And it's pretty, pretty arrogant to yeah. not. Yeah. And to take no precautions in case you're wrong. Right. So that feels worse right now. Um, you know, when, when, uh, no, do, do people talked about the environment back in the somewhat, 60s yeah, and yeah, 70s. Right. Well, in 1970 was the first Earth Day, mm -hmm. and that it, that was very slow in getting started because people didn't quite believe it. You know, you you go to the beach, you swim out in, in the Atlantic Ocean, let's say at Jones Beach, and you look out there, and if you urinate while you're sitting, you say, This can't hurt anything, can it? This is so vast. I mean, it can't really. So we throw some garbage into it. Look at how huge this is. Right. But now it's we're really beginning to see it. We're not just beginning to see it. So I think in the beginning, a lot of well-meaning people didn't grasp the concept that we could really destroy the ozone layer or destroy the, the oceans. And we are doing it. Yeah. I mean, I was living in Los Angeles um, in the early 2000s. And uh, when I first got there, there was so much smog that my glands would wow. swell up. And I was thinking, I don't know if I can stay here much longer. And uh, they had recently put in some uh, pretty hard, pretty strong rules mm -hmm. about emissions. Mm -hmm. And now you go there, the smog is gone. It's, right. it's right. noticeably better. Right. I remember, I think it was 87 or 88, I'm not sure of the year, I went to Mexico City. Mm -hmm. And the air smelled like benzene to me. I mean, I just couldn't wait to get out of there. I couldn't quite breathe. Right. Uh, I don't know what it's like now, but it's really terrible. But it's great that here we have Los Angeles as an ex example of that we can clean up the air and we can repair this stuff. And with with what Trump is doing for coal and for, for all those industries and just throwing away all of those safeguards that we had, that's really scary. And that does feel different. Right. Uh, no president has ever called the press the enemy of the people. Either. That's right. That's very new. Yeah, that's very scary. Mm -hmm. It really is, because it sounds so dictatorial. It is what dictators do. Um, <clears throat> they discredit the press, and they arrest the press, and, and I'm afraid that you know Trump is capable of those things. Mm -hmm. But wouldn't he need the support of the people to do that? I'm afraid he might get the support of his base. I mean, it's 30%. I just read something the other day. We're now, um, as... We're beginning to realize things the way the Germans realized in the early 1930s that one third of our population is willing to kill another third of the population while the last third is willing to stand by and watch. Wow. I just read that. And I said, that's scary. And I think and that that's we're believable. getting close to, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Wow, that's heavy. Yeah. yeah. It's heavy because it's believable. Right, exactly. Yeah, and as a psycho psychotherapist with all this, all these years of experience, you've seen human nature, and it's worse. Yeah, yeah. it's worse elements. Yeah, and and some of the things that I I see that really terrible. I think one of the things that uh, rank up there in, in terms of terrible is the child abuse, mm. and I, I've seen quite a bit of that. I actually worked in a program early on 
where the families that were referred to the agency that I worked in had already been through the court systems and indicated as abusive uh, families. And we would go in and do family therapy with them. And some of the attitudes and some of, of what had happened was really horrible stuff. Yeah. Uh, were these people that were abusing children also abused? Most of the time, yes. Right. And they had this concept that children are supposed to meet the parents' needs. They would have things backwards. So, for instance, I remember one woman who was an abused child raising her five-year-old daughter, and her daughter was supposed to get up before the mother and put out the bowl and put out the cold cereal and pull it out the milk. And if she didn't get up in time, the mother would blame the child for the mm. mother being late at work and would paddle her wow. and, and, and hit her. Yeah. Was that how she was raised? Yeah. Yeah, was. to take care of her parents. When I was your age, I did this, and I did the shopping, and I took care of the laundry, and I knew how to cook when I was your age. That's what my mother had me do, and I did it, and I got, I got the belt, and it did me good. Right. How do you treat someone like that? It's very, very difficult. It is so entrenched. Right, because it's harder to unlearn than to just learn. Absolutely. And so you reach the point where you, you just have to provide rules for them about what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. Right. In this particular case, we had the courts backing us because they had already been through the court system, and we could report them again. Um, right. Well, lucky you have the laws. Right. But that doesn't really stop their thinking and motivations. No, it doesn't. It might change their be behavior. Right. Unfortunately, they're never really going to be great parents. Mm -hmm. And you hope that this child gets enough experience from other adults in their environment, somehow or another, teachers, counselors, if they go to a camp, if they go to a community center, if they're not isolated. But most of these families would keep their children out of those kinds of connections right. so that the children would be isolated and therefore more under the control of those parents. And we try and wrestle some of that control from them. Now, I know there's part of it that's <clears throat> just repeating what they know. Exactly. But they, also, but they also must not have enjoyed being treated like that as a kid? No, they didn't. But they think it was the right thing. And I learned a lot. So this is what I'm going to do to you. And you're not supposed to like it. Too bad. Right. So how do you make a person unlearn that? It's almost impossible. It is, huh? It's almost impossible. I'm sad to say. You know, and I believe in rehabilitation. But there's certain, you know, rehabilitation, it's interesting, means to return to a former state of existence, mm. to rehabilitate. And some of these people don't need rehabilitation. They need habitation. Oh, right. <laughs> they, nev they never had it to begin with. So you're, you're really asking to teach them something that they've never experienced before. And it's like learning a new language, a behavioral language. And you know, the older you are, the harder it is to learn a new language. Right. And it just becomes impossible at some point. Yeah, I'm not sure if I believe in this or not, but do you think there's possibly a case for hypnosis where you can kind of clear someone's mind and reprogram? No, that doesn't work. And I, I, I know hypnosis. I have uh -huh. I have training in hypnosis. And you, that's just, that's more movie kind of thing. It is. That, that stage fantasy, it, it, that does, doesn't exist. Can someone get into a trance and walk around and bark like a dog? Is that a thing? If, if they want to, sure. <laughs> Only oh, if they, they, want have, to. they have to. Want hypnosis to, yeah. just means you highly focused on one specific thing to the exclusion of everything else around you. Mm -hmm. So those people who were 
you know, focused on the watch, whatever it was, when, when the magician or the hypnotist slapped his hands, they didn't hear it because they were ignoring it. Um, right. but if, if my wife is reading a book and I start talking to her, she doesn't hear me <laughs> because, because she's in an informal trance and she's focused. She has a very fine concentration, ability to concentrate on what she's doing. So she's excluding everything else so that she can focus on the book. And she's probably so used to hearing your voice. It's just right. like the sound <laughs> right. of the <laughs> air. Exactly. Right. So, so that, that's an informal trance, mm-hmm. but that's really all hypnosis is. It's not the, the hocus pocus that, that uh, entertainers would have us believe. Right. <laughs> Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. So even with all this uh, experience with uh, political uprisings, social uprisings, uh, flawed humans, <laughs> yeah, you seem to maintain a positivity. I do, I do. I think life is worth living. Um, mm-hmm. I think life is precious. Yeah, and I do enjoy it. And um, I, I just, I'm fortunate. I was raised. Uh, I was fortunate to be raised in a healthy family. Uh, that was child focused mm-hmm. and uh, I have a brother I have a sister and uh, parents who were you know were good yeah um, do you do you learn from your clients often oh absolutely you do yeah, absolutely I've learned a lot from what I've done yeah oh absolutely I come away knowing things that I wouldn't have known and I don't just mean you know how you fix something um, but experiences emotions um I, i've learned a lot i've benefited from it greatly yeah you know, do you see yourself in clients sometimes sure sometimes mm-hmm. yeah now is that dangerous for you does that make it a little bit more of a heavy not session? if i no not if i uh no um not if i see it right. and make sure i understand that that that's my experience and i don't confuse it with their experience but i could certainly empathize because i've been there uh, some things I just sympathize because I haven't felt what they're feeling or haven't experienced what they experience, but I can understand it. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty good at being compassionate to other people's feelings. Yeah. What's the uh, greatest reward from it? Oh, that's, that's a hard one. I don't know. Um, I, I, the, the ability to help someone, mm-hmm. uh, someone tells me that I made a difference in their life. That's incredible. Yeah. There, there's no money that's worth that. That that's just an incredible feeling, and I've I've had it. I get uh, every over the years. I've gotten a few letters. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember one time a woman who was very depressed because of a, a, a adolescent rape that mm-hmm. had occurred to her that she had never told anyone at all because she was so ashamed. She what happened was her mother told her never to go to a bar, and at the age of nineteen she disobeyed her mother. She was still living at home. She snuck out. She went to a bar, and the man she met raped her. Wow. And so she believed that she caused that rape, and she lived with that for well into her 50s. And then it actually came out in a session. It took a long time. She was in treatment for almost a year before she would open up and tell me that. Wow. So, so you had known her for a year before, uh, before she... she even spoke of it. And then she, was that the first time she spoke of it? Yeah, absolutely. The wow. first uh, time at all. Never told, not out loud at mm-hmm. all, ever. 
And <clears throat> she stayed in therapy for another couple of years. And then about two or three years after she had stopped, um, I got a, a letter from her saying that she was at a concert listening to the music and it, it, it was years that she could not enjoy listening to music and she wanted to thank me. That's the kind of thing it's worth it mm -hmm. for. I mean, knowing that that one person is different and there are more than just one. So it, it feels very good. Yeah. I'm I, very lucky. Yeah. That's, that's great that you got that. And hearing that sounds a lot like the current event of, uh, Dr. Blasey Ford. Absolutely. Did you watch her testimony? I, every word of it. Okay. Now that, felt like she was in a therapy session in front of the whole country. What she did was amazing. She did. She exposed herself. She made herself vulnerable, not just to, I mean, if you're in, in this woman that I'm, I was telling you about was in a closed room with just me, a person she trusted implicitly. For a year. For a year before yeah. she could open up. Here, Dr. Ford is in front of all these hostile people with the television cameras, the lights, and the whole world, and even before she got there, she had already been threatened, her life had been threatened, she had to move out of her house, her identity was taken. Uh, what she went through was amazing to think of the strength that she had. It's interesting that you say that because I got an email from, from a former patient who sent me Dr. Ford's address at the, where she works, mm -hmm. at, at um, the university where she teaches. And I wrote her a thank you note. I haven't mailed it yet. I just wrote it this morning. Oh, that's great. To thank her for what she did. I mean, what she did was just amazing. And it, saying, well, what took her 36 years to, to finally say something? What took this woman 50 years, right. uh, my client, to, to say something? I understood that completely. Yeah. And so did every other woman who's been through it. And therapist. Yeah, and therapist, right. <laughs> so watching her, I've heard the theory that she had kind of a, a childish voice sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Is there something to that? I don't know. Um, there might be, because I don't know her. So I don't know what her regular voice is like. I could well imagine that, as she said, she was terrified. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure that, that uh, some of that high-pitched squeaking that came out was just her tension and her fear and her fright and, and what she was going through. Yeah. Do you fear any sort of backlash? Yeah. With this? Yeah. I think there's already a backlash. Mm -hmm. I mean, when, when Trump is saying... Uh, it's dangerous for men now because they're going to get accused of something they didn't do. Well, Jesus Christ, pardon me, but mm -hmm. um, here's a man who, if you remember the the five um, in the subway, the Chicago, uh, the, the uh, Central Park Five, yeah. who even after they were declared innocent, yep. he said they still should get the death penalty. Right. And here he's accusing innocent men, five black men. Right. And, and now he's saying, oh, it's a bad time for men because women will accuse you of something. He even took out a full page in the New York Times. Did he? With that, yeah. Oh, God. I, he, I saw today's paper. I didn't see that. Was it in today's paper? Oh, no, this is back before. Oh, when he took out about the Central, Central Park. Park. Yes, yeah. I did see that. Oh, he yeah. took out a, a full page ad on that. Right. And they had already been cleared from new DNA evidence. Right. So it wasn't even just they couldn't prove right. it. It was. Right. He was, they were proven not guilty. And he's still accusing them. And now he's telling men, be careful because women will accuse you when you're innocent. Right. He's got a lot of nerve. Yeah, but the, the, this pathological thing is that when she, his first statement after seeing her testimony was, it was very credible. It right. was very moving. Right. I feel bad for her or something. And then all of a sudden, a week later, mm. she's a liar. Whatever is convenient, mm. whatever works for him at the moment, and he can flip flop 
and he can be contradictory one minute to the next. If something he decides something else has to work, then that's what's true at that moment. Right. He has. He he's not grounded. He's not stable. He he has no anchor. He has no base. Yeah. If he came to you as a client, <laughs> how would you go about treating someone like that? Do you think you can get them to see that they're lying? Um, first of all, I mean, I don't think he would ever come to anyone. Uh huh. Um, if he, you don't think he's been in therapy before? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why would he come? What you know? What what is uncomfortable? What is he unhappy about? I, he would never come. I mean, someone who comes to therapy wants, hopefully, wants something. Well, they come for either one or two reasons. They they want to come because they want something to change and to get better, or they've come because they want someone else who's going to confirm their beliefs. They'll tell you. They'll tell me their story, mm -hmm. and see, isn't my wife a horror? Right. And they they're looking for confirmation um, of what they already believe. Or they are so upset and they do want change. He doesn't want change. And he would never go for therapy. Maybe the one change he'd want is to be more favorable amongst a lot of the press. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. And which shows how demented he is because all he has to do is be a little more self-aggrandizing. Like just a little more, you know, hum humble. Right. I mean, people point at he won. What 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 is he yelling about? Right. What, what, yeah, he won. All he has to do is be nice because he won. He got what he wanted, but he's he's acting as if he lost. Right. It's crazy. Which proves the lack of intelligence in yeah. a way. Yeah. He no. He is. He has no intelligence. Listen to his vocabulary. It's it's that of it's an tremendously limited. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so you do uh, couples therapy as well, huh? I do couples therapy. Um, I sometimes do family therapy, but I'll do couples and, and individuals, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I believe that, that uh, sometimes it's necessary uh, for someone to be in their environment, their social, their fa familial environment uh, needs to be included in the change. Uh, I certainly believe that with, with young children. I don't believe in making uh, 10-year-olds or 8-year-olds patients because if you pluck him out of a family system, even if you get the child to change, then you're putting him back in the same system. So and could it, isolate them? It, it's it's not going to work. They're going to go back because the same system is still you know impacting on them. You need to change that whole system within mm -hmm. the family. Mm -hmm. Now, when you're dealing with uh, couples, it must be tricky because do you? I'm sure you often see it's usually one person that's the main problem. Often, yeah, yeah often. Not always, but often. And and the way in which, so um, yeah, you got to get you got to change what they're doing. Um, right. You got to change the script, as I often tell them. Mm -hmm. I mean, you keep responding the same way, you keep getting the same reaction. So why do you keep responding the same way? Figure out something else. But yeah, lots of lots of time there is one person who's the problem. But oftentimes it's the relationship and way in which they interact. Right. And so, what's for people listening that are in relationships? What's one of the main pieces of advice you can give? Try to have a little more self awareness. Try to listen. Um, most people, when they're arguing, don't listen. Mm -hmm. They uh, want to get their point out. Exactly. They want to get their point across. So if you can let your partner know that you're actually listening to what they're saying, then that would help. So for instance, most of the time when you see people argue, before the person finishes their statement, the other person's already responding. Right. So that means if they're responding, they stop listening. 
because they were they were formulating their response in their head halfway through the statement. So you've got to listen and then respond accordingly. I'll sometimes say, and this will, you know, these little tricks to get people to, to be aware of something, I'll tell them that the word listen and the word silent are anagrams of each other. Mm. All the same letters just rearranged. Mm-hmm. So if you're busy talking, you're not listening. Right. So you try and get people to listen. That makes a big difference in a relationship. Yeah, and how you express yourself. Very important. Try not to point the finger, but say right. how you feel from the first person. Right. And and just your tone sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, when I, if I say to someone, why'd you do that? That sounds like you shouldn't have done that. Right. But if I say, well, that's interesting that you did it that way. How come you chose that way? And I'm kind of stretching it out a bit. Yeah. But rather than saying, so you did it that way, how come? Rather than why'd you do that? Right. One <laughs> one puts the person on the defense. Exactly. And so as soon as you do that, you you're not having you're not having a conversation anymore. You're just having a debate. Mm-hmm. And and the other thing I'll say to people is, do you want to be right or you want to be married? <laughs> right. I mean, you, both. You, and that's the that's the response. I often get that response. Right. Both. We can't can't always have both. Uh-huh. You know, it's like I'll tell them, you sound like two lawyers beating each other over the head with your evidence, mm. but you're not getting anywhere. So let's try and figure out how we can make this different. And then if you get if you get two people to agree to that contract, okay, I'm here to make it different rather than I'm here to prove my point. Most people who come into marital counseling, at least one partner, oftentimes both, come to get me to say the other person's wrong. Right. See, he he told you you shouldn't have been doing that all along. Right. I was the right person. And that that if you but if you hear because you know your partner needs you to change and you're willing to do that and your partner knows that you want him to change you, know, you both agree okay i'll try and make a difference what do you need now we got something to do but if you're just going to come in here and prove your point then go to a courtroom because i can't help you yeah and you've been married for a while i've been married for just over 50 years okay a long time one one wife one wife same okay, wife. so it works uh, it works it, it can work uh, i love my wife yeah yeah communication great. is uh yeah and and my you know my wife's a social worker also she yeah. is she's a social worker she was the director of a mental health clinic for the elderly mm-hmm. for 32 years before she retired from that and actually my blog was her idea it's a great idea and it's a yeah. great blog yeah she she um has a really soft spot in her heart for the elderly mm-hmm. always has that was her program and she said, you know, they're out there, they're not in their rooms alone, and you should be photographing them and, and talking to them about them being out there and what it's like. And I said, I don't know if that's such a great idea. At first, I didn't think it was such a great idea. Uh-huh. And then once I started doing it, I said, this is great. Yeah, and when you do that, you really do, you really are helping them. I, I think so. And they're helping me. I mean, they're mm-hmm. really helping me have a good time. They really am. And as a viewer of the, and reader of the blog, it helps me. Wow, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's good for everyone because I think you're right. The elderly are just very often overlooked. Yeah. yeah. So this blog is available. I'll put the links up in the show notes. Okay. Yep. And I'm sure uh, I missed so much about your life. Uh, I think you you had some great questions and covered an awful lot. Okay, but I'm sure there's. I mean, 74 years. I don't even know what else. <laughs> well, if you think of more, I'd be happy to. I, I love talking to you. This is great. Yeah. So, thanks so much for doing well, this. Thank you. Thanks for sharing your wisdom. Really. Well. Thank you very much. Yes, good questions. (laughs) 
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.